This is an ABC podcast. With the advent of the net, there was a chance to challenge the way mass media could influence us. Niche writers could have their say, thousands of them, for us to peruse. But are they just playing to their audience to get clicks? Hi, I'm Amanda Vanstone. This is CounterPoint, the program that looks at different things in a different way. Getting different viewpoints is extremely valuable, but there's a cost. You have to listen to the views other than your own. A view held centuries ago in Mesopotamia was that it was a good idea to bury your dead rallies under the floorboards. Can you believe that? Thank heavens that's gone. But first, let's look at India's trade policies. Once considered the domain of nerds, trade policy is now understood as a key driver in economic growth. And if India doesn't get it right, well... Even if you didn't study economics, and don't want to, frankly... It is of interest, isn't it, why some countries get ahead so quickly and others take a bit more time. One example would be China, you know, providing, what is it, a third of the iPhone now? And India, not managing quite as well. So what are the things that make countries do well in industrialising or not? Joining us now to talk about that is Srijan Shukla. He's a final year candidate in international business and politics at the New York University and Stern School of Business. He's done a piece for the Lowy Interpreter about how trading can unlock India's industrial potential. Now, we know that trade has lifted people out of poverty, can lift countries out of poverty. So let's see what he has to say. Srijan Shukla, when was the last time you were in India? First of all, good to be here. I was in India, I'd say, over the winter, which was in December. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you love going yeah, back? Not that long ago. Absolutely. Love going back. I'm from this city called Kanpur, which is about a little bit east of Delhi. And funnily, mm-hmm. it was known as the Manchester of East back when the Brits were ruling over India. Yep. Yep. So it was one of the old industrial hubs of Asia, as you may see it. Yeah. Okay. Now, tariffs is not the sort of thing people having coffee on a weekday say to themselves, oh, great, let's have a gossip about tariffs. But they are important, aren't they? They make a big difference. And India's tariff regime hasn't helped them, has it? Absolutely not. So to get it straight, India used to have exceptionally high tariffs, let's say about like 30 years ago. So back in 1991, the average Indian tariff rate was about 125%. So this is deep autarky. This is extreme import protectionism. From that point, there was a liberalization of tariffs. So Indian tariffs came down substantially. So in, say, let's about 2013, 2014, this average rate almost climbed down to about 9-10%, about 8% actually. But over the past five, six years, it's a huge difference. And India reaped gains. India, actually Indian exports soared over this period. But I'd say over the past five, six years, Indian tariffs have started rising up again. So India's again embarked on what a lot of scholars called import protectionism 2.0. Given that we've got a global market now, global value chains are important. And if you want to get in there, you know, you've got to have a tariff regime that allows you to do that. What are the mistakes India's made in that context? So to begin with, just to give like a kind of some top line statistics, About 70% of global exports, give or take, actually come from global value chains right now. And India's integration in these global value chains is close to 2%. So the big problem with India is it doesn't have a manufacturing hub, does not have a manufacturing potential, which basically means now if India wants to become a manufacturing power to some degree or the other, it needs to integrate into global value chains. Now, how does Indian trade policy essentially disincentivize this. So India is what scholars call an inverted tariff duty structure. What that means is that on a lot of products, especially the products that are made in these global value chains, for a lot of these products, the tariffs on final goods in India are actually quite low 
but the tariffs on intermediate goods are quite high. Now, government does seem to have a way of looking at this. Their idea is that we want a lot of global assembly. So we want India to be a part of global value chains. We want a lot of assembly of these goods to happen in India. But we don't just want that final assembly to take place. We also want a lot of Indian domestic manufacturer to supply these inputs. So by raising tariffs on these intermediate goods, it's giving them protection. It's giving them some kind of comfort, Ah, some kind of backup against international competition. But the problem is most of these Indian manufacturers who might or might not provide these intermediate goods, they have no experience in participating in export markets. They have no experience of participating in global value chains. So what that means is they're not productive enough to compete at that level. If I want to put that into a conversation I might have over coffee with friends, is this what I say? Would I say, look, India wants to compete in these global value chains and they have to import a whole lot of stuff to do that, but they'd really rather make that stuff themselves. So they put high tariffs on the things they need to import to make bigger stuff to export. They're doing that to try and make those, as you call them, intermediate goods, the stuff in the middle. But they haven't got the capacity to make them, so they're stopping themselves getting into the big global value chains. They're hindering themselves because they're not easily getting the intermediate goods into India. That's absolutely right. Hmm, Good. I understood. I'll give myself a gold star. (laughs) Right. Now, do they realise they've made this mistake? I think they have a strategy in mind, but that strategy seems to be flawed. So their strategy is they want to leapfrog from, let's say, 0 to 80. But how this actually works is you can only gradually increase the value-added components in a particular supply chain. So let's take the case of Apple in China. Basically, it began assembling an iPhone in China. The actual value added in China was just a couple of percentage points. But over the years, it's almost risen to about 25-30%, depending on the calculation you go for. But it's taken a very long time for them to get there. There is no shortcut to this. So the Indian government seems to think that they can move directly to that 30%, but it doesn't work that way. Okay. Now, you've got some criticisms of their trade agreements too. Yep. The conversation in Australia is often about, oh, watch out if you're doing deals with Chinese companies because your intellectual property will be stolen. You know, that's the only reason they want to go into business with you is they want to learn how to make the car you make and then they're going to make it themselves. I get all that. But trade agreements now are really quite complex, aren't they? And they cover this sort yep. of thing, intellectual property and so on. But India avoids, according to you, those detailed agreements and go for what you describe as shallow ones. Why do they do that? Can't they see that, you know, the big players, the few big players in the world want to protect their intellectual property? I think in the Indian case, it's slightly less to do with intellectual property. So Mm. to give a little bit of credit to India, I think for a very long time, Indian government had probably been very hesitant, very reluctant to sign on to trade agreements. I think it's begun changing over the past couple of years. But Mm -hmm. there is a logic to why you need to be a part of these trade agreements. So when you look at a lot of the East Asian cases, especially the ones that industrialized, there was a common feature there. It was a steady inflow of foreign direct investment. Now, Mm -hmm. in the current global economy, most of these global value chains are basically run by a few multinational firms, which essentially arrange these supply chains to several countries. Now, given this, a lot of trade agreements that happen essentially are demanded by these multinationals so that they can have investment protection in these several countries. So in a way, what essentially happens is you need to be a part of these trade agreements to attract that FDI. And there is no other way to industrialize without that foreign direct investment. So if India wants to industrialize, it has to sign on to some of these trade agreements. Though there are some probable ways to do it without getting into some of these complex deals. So what we've seen from evidence is that 
basically there are two particular chapters or two policy areas in these preferential trade agreements which have increasingly become very complex that are essential for this foreign direct investment and these are to do with investment protection and competition policy so even if india doesn't want to sign these big complex agreements or become a part of these big regional trade deals what it can do is find ways to at least do these small deals with respect to competition policy and investment yeah. protection i think this should ease out a bit of india's mm-hmm. troubles is this a topic of much debate in indian politics on a day to day basis in the indian media unfortunately it's not and i think there is a no, reason for it because most trade policy is actually a product of a political economy logic right so mm-hmm. there are different domestic lobbies that either lobby for import liberalization or protectionism yeah usually it's the exporters or firms that participate in these global value chains they are the ones that lobby in favor of more and more liberalization the case with india is most of its firms actually don't export so there is a lot of lobbying that happens but that lobbying happens in favor of import protectionism and i think mm. that's why you don't hear of that debate because that pro liberalization alliance doesn't exist in those numbers mm mm that's true and the experience here has been that companies that don't do any export largely would like to be protected they just like to go on producing what they produce and selling it to local people and you know life's pretty good for them but yeah. everywhere not just india you need companies that want to get out there and get a part of these global value chains and you know what they make that they make really well sell to the whole world at large so i don't think india is alone in having issues with sorting out the best trade policies anyway i have to say srijan shukla it's been a pleasure talking to you today thanks for joining us and giving us some insight into what at the moment is holding india back same here thanks for having me Trade policy was once considered a niche area of study, and of course, on the net you can find lots of little niche spots. No doubt you've read plenty of stories about the power of the media to push our opinions this way and that way, and how divided our media is these days. You know, you're on that side of the town square yelling, and the other people are on the other side of the town square yelling. and there's not much in between enter the internet great hope for a broader range of views to be put for a better understanding but is that what is really happening or are the people who have their own little spots in social media actually just catering to their audience as well well let's find out let's talk to renee deresta she's the technical research manager at the stanford internet observatory and she joins us now from the united states renee deresta do you think that the voices on the internet now are more and more polarized simply because they're listening to their own audience and feeding back what the audience wants well i think there's a feedback loop at work right now and one of the things that has happened in the last few years is that we've moved beyond social media into really fantastic platforms that we might call patronage patronage platforms that's things like patreon or substack for newsletters or even only fans for adult content and so creators can monetize audiences very directly right they can set up their own kind of media of one platform and they can say the things that they want to say and one of the interesting challenges though is that they still have to attract an audience and so in order to do that you do still have that sensationalism incentive because most of these creators are still advertising on social media so even though the content they produce moves through a subscription model the means of trying to grab enough attention to attract an audience is still very much subject to the same kind of bad incentives that social media has created for media producers part of me thinks that when you're looking at social media really you should realize that this person is selling a niche argument and it's your job to go and look at other sites to get different views are we kidding ourselves when we expect or if we expect particular sites to offer a balanced range of views 
shouldn't we take responsibility for going to the different sites and deciding for ourselves? I mean, that's what my husband and I do with the papers to which we subscribe. We don't read just one of them because it's useless. You'll only get one side of the story. You have to subscribe to the other side as well. Shouldn't we have to do that? I, I agree. I mean, I think that there is a lot of audience responsibility here. You know, social media tends to kind of slot you into sometimes we call them bubbles or echo chambers, but what it's really doing is it's slotting you into areas of interest that it knows you have, right? So it's reinforcing the things that you already hold, the opinions you already hold, the people you want to spend time with. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but when it comes to things like political news, what you're describing is very much a dynamic that happens. And so one of the interesting things that is happening with the subscriber media, the kind of patronage media that I was writing about or that we were talking about, is that you have to decide to pay money for it. And on one level, this is fantastic because you're rewarding a creator, right? You're enabling a creator to earn a living off of your patronage, your subscription. Uh, On the other hand, though, since these are very much right now kind of individual newsletters, individual creator accounts, you wind up subscribing to quite a few. And at a point, you are, you know, then deciding you're going to give your $5 a month to maybe these five or six creators. And so you're really kind of trying to decide who you're going to give that money to and expecting people, I think, to necessarily say, okay, well, I'm going to commit to going out and paying for the other side of the story. I want that writer to have my monthly allocation. It's not something that we necessarily see happening. A lot of the time you do see very much kind of cross-promotion, people who are very ideologically similar, competition for the limited amount of money that individuals have to spend on news each month. And so you are starting to see, and I think we will see, actually kind of bundling where multiple different authors begin to work together again, in a sense, (laughs) you know, reinventing the newspaper. So it's going to be interesting to see how this particular part of the ecosystem continues to evolve. Look, I don't know who wrote the song where the words go, I look at life from both sides now. I wonder if someone has got the brains to set up a site and if it would work that was called Both Sides, where you could subscribe and on any particular issue, there would always be two articles. So in order to get an article on, you had to get someone to write the contrary view and the two of you would go on. What would you think of that? I'd subscribe to that. I'd love it. I think it'd be very entertaining, actually. I would like that too. I think you'd have to get writers who are, you know, engaging in good faith and maybe have a similar tone, you know, that they want to take. But I think that would be very interesting. I mean, I do actually personally subscribe to people across the ideological spectrum. And I have found Substack in particular to be a place where I can find writers I don't think I would have necessarily encountered, but for the fact that they were shared. So I do think it is a valuable addition to the ecosystem. I do think that there's some real potential there. And I would like to see more of the sort of thing that you're describing. I mean, Noam Chomsky was in the manufacturing of consent. That's in part people have that in their mind when they're critical of mass media. But really, the consequences of subscribing to a niche substack, for example, are just the same. They're going to be feeding you what you want to hear. Right. And I think one of the ways in which Chomsky's manufacturing consent was often misinterpreted was as something that was anti-media or even anti-mass media, anti-journalism. When what he was trying to do was say, this is the system as it is, these are the incentives And with those incentives, these are the outputs that we can expect to see, right? And so I think with the new ecosystem, we should have the same view. We should say not, oh, the new ecosystem is propaganda-free, you know, haven of small Mm. individual writers, you know, (laughs) just talking and there's, you know, no propaganda there and there's no impact to what it says or does. I think we need to look at it now as technology has given us this new ecosystem. It's created these new incentives And now as we look at what the incentives are producing, we have that same responsibility that Chomsky did articulate to try to really go looking for journalism that moves beyond those incentives and prioritizes the incentives of the audience, the people. As I understand it, companies like Substack look to see how successful you are in getting a following. And it's called the four fire emoji. You know, I use someone who can like one fire, two fire, three fires or four, get really people engaged. So again, this seems as if it's a trait of the big media companies about which we're so rude, that really even the niche people are looking for conflict because they're looking for clicks. 
I think on the political side of Substack, that is very much how it has evolved. Many of the people from the United States were on there, got on there in part because they were perhaps banned by Twitter. And so they moved to Substack and then framed themselves as using this platform where they could have a voice again. So that was one of the dynamics that acquired some of the political writers on there. But I think also Substack does just offer infrastructure to people who sit in particular niches. There's a Substack that's called Department of Salad, and it's just a bunch of salad recipes. <laughs> so there's a lot of these niche creators who have managed to find a way to connect with an audience outside of the sensationalism and the anger and vitriol on social media. But for many of the political writers, it is simply just that ported onto a slightly new platform. Okay. Now, where does this leave us? Recognizing it's one thing. I always think if you recognize your problems or characteristics of an issue, it helps you to deal with it more effectively. But are there any people who've got ideas about where this is going or how to better manage it? Or are we simply recognizing what we're dealing with and having recognized that we should manage it better ourselves? You know, there's a couple things there, right? I think Substack did replicate some of the same not great incentives of social media in the kind of early growth and dynamics on the platform. And as it tries to continue to help creators find audiences, it's going to start to do things like leaderboards and promotions and suggestions most likely are kind of clustering audiences and making suggestions. So there are opportunities for some of the same kind of mediocre dynamics that tech platform, social media platform recommender systems created to just be replicated. So I think that there's ways that platforms can try to be cognizant of not just recreating those same networks on a slightly different place. But I think on the other front, there is you know this user agency, and that I think is the informed consumer model, right? Which is what is the incentive of this platform and this writer? And how do I consciously diversify my media diet or my Substack subscriptions <laughs> to take in a more perhaps balanced set of perceptions around the topics of interest that I have. Well, look, I loved reading the article, but towards the end, you talk about the effect being the lost consensus and endless hostility. I'm not sure we ever did have consensus, but we did at least have an understanding that the other side should be listened to, not shouted at. Renee, your articles are always interesting. Thanks very much for joining us today for CounterPoint. Thanks for having me on. And with all these different views, of course, you have to pay the price, put the effort in and understand the other side. These days, everybody's expressing their view, dissenting about this, dissenting about that. It's a cost associated with dissent. And it's worth paying, but you have to pay it. If we have uninformed disagreement, or as some people call it, incontinent dissent, doesn't do us any good at all. And this is worth thinking about because, you know, we need to encourage people to be able to express their view. But it's not, this is what I think, and I'm just going to say it, and then I don't need to participate at all. There's a lot more to it than that. To talk about this, we're going to be joined by Robert Thornett. He's in Panama at the moment. He's an independent author. He's taught in seven countries. Gee, that's an experience. And he joins us now from Panama. Robert Thornett, welcome to CounterPoint. Have you got an example of the most stupid expression of dissent that you can think of? <laughs> well, there are many. But I'm thinking of things like, you know, your anonymous online comments that people make. You know, sometimes you go on these websites where, you know, you ask, I think it's Quora.com, you ask a question and then people are, if they know the answer, they're supposed to write the answer. And then there's people who respond and they'll say in their response, I don't really know, but here's my opinion anyway. <laughs> so they know they don't know, but they, yet they dissent anyway. So it's kind of like, okay, all right. <laughs> it's odd, isn't it? Now, we do recognise, don't we, that dissent is essential. I mean, that's how we move forward by having disagreements, resolving them, moving on from where we are now. We don't just sit and say, everything's okay, steady as she goes we'll all stay the same. And dissent's an essential part of that, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And actually, you know, like in my life, I just turned 50. I've been teaching in international schools since I was 28, I think it is. And yeah. I've sought out diversity and 
in my classroom, I've been able to teach subjects like geography and history where you can bring the different students' multicultural backgrounds into the class. Some kids speak four languages. It's really fantastic, you know? So I love diversity and I love to hear arguments and disagreements. But at the same time, as a teacher, I've seen where, you know, sometimes schools, teachers, cultures in education are not really instilling, you know, responsible dissent in kids. They're sort of asking kids or putting pressure on kids to sort of repeat certain sound bites and slogans, you know, that are not really about dissent. It's more of a performance. You know, they're just kind of performing it as sort of the mentality, you know. Robert, don't. You're taking me back to a time when I was the immigration minister and I went shopping in our local market. Someone came with me from office. We ended at lunchtime to do some shopping. And a young girl who was obviously working over the Christmas period jumped out of one of the stalls and came yelling abuse at me, like, performance is right. Gee, she was like right in my face, right up. And if I stepped back, she'd step back. And she didn't yeah. want to listen. She didn't want to have a discussion. It was just yelling. Now, if you've been the immigration minister in Australia, you get used to being abused. But the poor staffer who'd agreed to come to lunch with me was completely shattered because just this aggressive performance. And you point out in your piece that the virtues of prudence and humility that let us acknowledge when we're maybe not up to informed dissent are missing. People somehow think dissent of itself is a value. Very much, very much missing. It's a lost art of prudence and humility. And ironically, I think that's where our freedom of speech, the people who you know originally fought for it and institutionalized it, the reason they did that is because they had virtues like prudence and humility. They understood that you know no one person is always right and you want many voices to be able to be heard so they can hear their arguments so that society is better, so society can be more prudent. But like you said in your example, yeah, we have people now that just think that if anything's coming out of my mouth, I have the freedom to do that, therefore it has value, you know, just because I'm saying mm. it. And of course that's not true because then if that was true, then everyone could do that and just state their opinion and you'd just get a Tower of Babel where everyone's just, I have a teacher who's a friend who made a joke, he literally just observing a few years ago, he said, it seems like everybody's protesting everybody else. Like everyone's <laughs> protesting, so who are they protesting except other protesters, you know? So you can't have everyone protesting. Yeah. Now, at one point, you say that earnest and civil disagreement, which hopefully more people are yearning for, takes courage. How do you explain that? I got lucky. I had a great professor in college named Joshua Mitchell, who wrote a book about identity politics recently. But I remember from 1995 when I had him in class way back then, and he has so many great lines in class, but one was, he said, like Socrates, you know, a true dialogue is when you're not just, you know, giving an argument, but you're also listening and risking philosophical death, you know, because Socrates died for what he believed. That means you have to risk being wrong, put yourself out there. So you're not just speaking, you know, to prosecute, you know, so you can just get something, but you want to get the truth. You are looking for the truth. That's why we have the freedom of speech is so we can arrive at the truth. And that takes courage and just to connect to what we were just speaking about, you know, when I look at some of the things that go on in schools where all the kids are herded into a bus and they hand them a sign on Earth Day and everybody says, you know, climate change or global warming and this and that. But then I have them in class and I teach climate, I teach climate geography and stuff like that. And I know that these students haven't really learned a whole lot about climate. They're just going through the motions, the performance then we're not really teaching the courage part. You know, it doesn't take a lot of courage to just march with all your friends and high five each other and then come back in the bus. And it's not their fault. I'm just saying that that's not no, what's no. being taught with that exercise. No, I want to quote Thomas Sowell saying that we've got kids who are, you know, less than 10 that are urged to write letters to congressmen and presidents yeah. about whatever, nuclear energy doesn't matter. And they're encouraged to express a view on questions that, might take a lifetime of learning for some people to get on top of, but it's important, yeah. they're told, for them to have a view on this and to express that view. And they might yeah. not have the capability at that age of understanding 
viewpoint A and viewpoint B and maybe C, D and E. They've just been told something and they run with it as if it's an opinion when really it's just mouthing off something else they've been told. They haven't gone through the process of forming an opinion, listening to others, you know, discarding some views, adding in others and forming their own opinion, have they? They haven't. And again, that's the reason we have freedom of speech so that we can go through that deliberation process as a society so we can all pitch in or listen and hear the public dialogue so that we all come to a better, more informed conclusion. So standing up and speaking out is great, like I said in the article, but if it's just that, if it's just, like you said, if it's an 11-year-old kid, here's a soundbite, here's a slogan, stand up and speak out for it, then we're bypassing or skipping all the deliberation, all the dialogue. And, you know, like John Stuart Mill said, if you don't understand the other person's view, if you haven't really investigated why the other side believes what they do, then you don't really know your own view. Mm. So then what is it that you're standing up for if you don't even know that? So, yeah, I think it's really when you teach kids a hollow performance, that's another aspect of the cost. You know, that's a generation that after that, you know, for years, we're telling kids you're an activist now. You know, because you held that sign and you chanted, you had that face paint. Now you're an activist. You know, we've sort of lowered the bar for activists to just anyone stating an opinion is an activist, as long as I agree with that opinion. (laughs) So yeah, we can go to Starbucks and watch people exchanging opinions and I guess they're all activists now. In a lot of ways, Martin Luther King can be a model for all of us. But one in particular where he chose to avoid you might say, undermining the civil rights movement. He might have done it out of self-interest. But for whatever reason, he did it. He didn't call America systemically racist. He didn't start his argument with, you're all a pack of nasty people. He Mm. started his argument by praising America's, as you quote, magnificent founding principles of equality and natural rights. And that's what appealed to people. That's how you can change a mind. Not by just yelling at the other side, but by really considering both aspects of it. Do you think in that sense Martin Luther King's the best example of someone doing that sort of thing? He's a great example. And really what he wanted was for black Americans to have what everybody else had. That's the essence of civil rights, you know, to get equality so that they could share in the American dream. And that's completely different from the current, you know, the 1619 project and the critical race theory and the woke stuff and all that, which is just saying that that whole America is all stained and tainted, as opposed to saying that blacks should get the right to enjoy all those benefits like everybody else. It's a completely different way of going about it. And it doesn't go anywhere. It's just a dead end because you're just saying the whole country's rotten. And then what? You know, so, so it doesn't really get anybody anywhere in terms of progress. Mm. So what happens when you either have dissent everywhere, everyone just expressing views but they're not considered views, there's just a, as you say, like a Tower of Babel, or the opposite of that, one party rule, an authoritarian state. Innovation that diversity is meant to encourage just can't operate, can it? I mean, it's just killed in that Tower of Babel type situation and it's smothered in one party rule. So... Really, these so-called activists are killing that which could bring all of us a better life and a better understanding, even if it's not a better life, a better understanding of who we are and why we're here. Yeah, that's exactly it. When you get cancel culture, you know, sort of activists who just cancel anyone who doesn't agree with them, then you don't have any diversity anymore. And, you know, that's one of the things that I mentioned somewhere in the middle. You know, it's difficult to maintain diversity and freedom of speech and dissent, because it's counter to our tribal wiring. You know, we're wired to stick with our tribe's beliefs, with the group that we fit into. We want to protect what they say. We don't want to allow others to possibly change that. That's kind of that risking philosophical death. And it's not going to work in a large multicultural democracy. It might work in a small tribe but it doesn't work in a big country like Australia, like the United States, in a big, diverse country. So we have to sort of have the metacognition and the vision to move beyond that. And that's something we need to teach the kids, too, is how to argue 
and how to have a dialogue. It's a lost art. I will say that there are signs of hope out there. You know, there's some schools which do a good job, others not so much. But one activity that I've seen that I wish I had done when I was a mm-hmm. student is Model UN, Model United Nations. I've been an advisor with that now. And it's great because each student gets assigned a certain country. They're Mm -hmm. representing a country or an organization. And they're broken into committees and they have to form a resolution. They have to form some kind of agreement. That's their goal. And they have to, you know, see past their individual interests while also incorporating those interests into this final piece. So I think it's a really good practice for how to be part of a larger multicultural society. Hmm. Robert, from a distance, American politics doesn't look that great at the moment. It looks like two <laughs> major parties <laughs> <laughs> two major parties just constantly at war with each other. Then thinking that war is more important than, if you like, the battle to raise America's standing and the opportunities for American citizens. And I have to say, my own country seems to be following suit. So much of our political discourse is why the other party is wrong rather than, you know, why this policy is wrong or this policy is right. It's more about having a go at the other people. So I was pleased to see you, including a quote from John McCain, who is a bit of an American hero and probably an international one, where he says that we've been spinning our wheels on too many important issues because we keep trying to find a way to win without help from across the aisle. We're getting nothing done. Now, that seems to me to be a great comment on American politics, but it equally applies to individual debates, doesn't it, to the so-called activists who's spinning their wheels wanting to show that they're right rather than reaching out to the person with whom they're having a discussion or argument and finding out what they think and together working on the issue. So McCain was a bit of a philosopher then, wasn't he? He was, and I always liked watching him how he went about issues, because he had such a big picture view, such a diplomatic view of the world. And you're absolutely right. When it's just about appealing to a certain crowd, you know, that you're already your supporters, and it's not about actually trying to do what's best for the country as a whole, then, you know, it's just not going to work. And my professor, Joshua Mitchell, that I mentioned, he's a great phrase for that. He says it's about building a world together and having a tomorrow, you know, because yeah. if it's just cancel, then we're not building, we're just tearing down and there's no thought about tomorrow if it's just canceling the other. And yeah, like you see in so many debates or the news, even the presidential debates in the United States, sadly, it's almost a contest as to who can dredge up the worst thing that the other person ever did and then lay it out on the table as opposed Mm. to, you know, what can the United States do moving forward? And it's kind of interesting. A couple of years ago, I was teaching a class called Ivy Global Politics, and I said to the class, let's look at this video. I had found a video, it's a great one to watch, from 1960. It's the Kennedy-Nixon debates from 1960, Mm -hmm. John F. Kennedy versus Richard Nixon. Because these students today, their experience with presidential debates is Trump versus Hillary, Trump versus Biden, you know, just a really caustic, you know, bitter. And you watch Kennedy Nixon, it's just two guys very calmly explaining, here's what I believe. Here are some very specific things I think America should do. Your turn. And then he says, you know, what he thinks America should do. There's no disrespect. It's all about the issues. It's a completely different type of debate altogether. So I just put that out there for perspective. It hasn't always been this way. There's been better times. Yeah. Robert Thornett, thanks for joining us today and giving us a bit more insight into the need to have proper dissent where you understand what the other people think rather than just incontinent disagreement. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to be with you. Look, I admit I'm a slow learner sometimes. Yesterday, I bought some seafood, some prawns, actually. I wanted 200 grams. And the guy put 300 in the tray. He said, oh, it's a bit over. I said, oh, okay. And when I got in the car, I thought, you stupid idiot. That guy 
He measures out 200 grams of prawns several times a day, and he has done for years. He knows exactly what 200 grams of prawns looks like. He was just upselling. What I should have done is say, no, I only wanted about 200 grams. And he would have had to go to the extra effort of scooping some out and putting them back. And if everyone did that, they wouldn't try and upsell us. Why do I mention this? Because I've noticed it happening to other people a couple of times. I haven't really thought much about it, but I've thought, oh, that's a bit off, you know, you would know how to measure that much weight if that's your job. And then it happened to me and I did nothing. Pathetic. Next time I'll say, no, I'm sorry, I want 200 grams or less. Can't let them upsell you like that. No. So when the guy in the fish shop says, oh, it's a bit over, I wonder what he says when in Mesopotamia they open the floorboards to bury another dead person. The smell might be a bit over. How do you remember people no longer with us, that is, who are dead? Is it in photos? Is it in discussions with family and friends when you're, you know, having a joke and remembering pastimes that were happy? How do you do it? Well, many, many, many years ago, people buried their family under the floorboards. And there was a reason for that, burying your dead beneath the floor. Anyway, so let's talk to someone who knows a bit about this. Nicola Lanieri is Associate Professor of Ancient Near East Archaeology and Art History at the University of Catania in Italy. Lucky guy, he lives in Catania. And he joins us now. Uh, Nicola Lanieri, do you have photos of deceased family members around your house or do you remember them in another way? Definitely, yes. I have the picture of my grandmother, picture of my father, picture of family members from my wife's side. She even created a sort of altar. I believe in the spirits of the ancestors. They're with us because they've been with us since the Neolithic. And so it's a tradition that I think we should keep inside us, inside our house, because it's a way of protecting us. Mm. So in ancient times, like 5,000 years or so ago, a while ago, these deceased ancestors were buried under the floor of houses. And prior to building the houses, you're saying that family funerary crypts were built before the house was put on top so that you had a place you could put these deceased people and then it was covered with a tombstone. Is that right? Definitely, yes. It's a tradition, the idea of burying their dead within the houses tradition starts like almost 8,000 years ago during the Neolithic period when villages started to be larger and larger. But it's during like, what we call the period of the city-states in Mesopotamia, that this tradition becomes more and more evident in the archaeological data. And it's clear that they were planning the house with the idea of placing the, the tomb of the ancestors within the house. It's interesting to notice that in those times, the temples, for example, didn't receive the same treatment. But it's interesting that we call the dead statues of the deities were buried within the temple at the end use of the temple. So it was the constant idea of burying within a building the dead ancestors, either human beings or deities. So it was the idea of being protected by the spirits of the ancestors. Do you think memories in the form of photos, just coming back to today, and in a sense linking it back to this practice of burying people under the floor, makes the grief more bearable because people feel as though they're part of a chain and reminding themselves that they're a part of a chain makes the moving forward without that person easier. Do you think that's why we do it? I think we do photos and memorabilia. It's not just photos. It's a series of things. I don't know what the next generation will do with all this devices, social mm. media, if those will become a source of memory for supporting the grief of the abandonment of the disease from their life. I don't know what's going to happen with the new generation, but I think we're still part of the old generation of keeping objects, material culture, that is photos, objects. I have a lot of objects for my grandparents, like, you know, pipes and stuff like that. Just like elements that can Touching those elements make me feel like I'm still connected with those members of the family. They're not here with me anymore. 
Now, what about the process of keeping skulls and, you know, as you mentioned, inlaying shells into the eye sockets and reconstructing heads in a sense? What are people trying to do when they do that? I'm going to use like a very difficult probably word. It's called the materiality of the spirits of the ancestors. When we're talking about these skulls, we're talking about a completely different period. It was a transformation of the social organization, the economic subsistence from hunter and gatherers to sedentary and agriculture, agro-pastoral economies. And so those skulls were keeping the memory of those founders of the family. So the first time that we're creating icons of probably spiritual essence of spirits. We can talk of the beginning of animism in that sense. And this is typical of what we call the pre-pottery Neolithic B period that is around 10,000 years ago, roughly. And they were keeping this probably within the houses, especially in the Levant and in Syria. It's interesting, the fact that they were using plaster that was used also for making the house and the shells that were probably related to water, to fertility. So it was an intermingling of different symbolic elements that were embedded in the creation of something that was new and was trying to reconstruct the head of those individuals. Those objects were visible, were touchable. We know this from, for example, another Neolithic site later, Chathaluyuk. And these objects sometimes were then reburied and at the end use of these plastered skulls. They were sometimes decorated with paint. So it was the first deity, if we want to call it like this. So it was a, a spiritual reference to the to the numinous, to the supernatural, to the mm. something Look, that was I, above them. I get it that these people didn't have cameras and, you know, this was a way of remembering. But what I'm not understanding is why they built these crypts under their houses. And as you point out in the article you've written, you know, the smell wasn't too good when they took the tombstone off to add another person down there. Why didn't they just bury the people in the garden near the house? The cemeteries existed, and cemeteries, according to some ethnographic studies from the 70s, that they're still, they were used to control the land. So, like you know, creating property over the land. But the selected ones were supposed to go inside the house. It's interesting to notice that the increase in terms of building crypts within the house starts when there is an increase in the role of the merchants in the economy of Mesopotamian societies. And it's not, I think, a case that merchants didn't have control over agricultural land. They were traveling a lot. So for them, at the end of their life, it was important to reside inside the house that they built because the merchants become, between the end of the third millennium and the beginning of the second millennium, especially during the beginning of the second millennium BC, they became a new social elite that was almost at the level of the palatial and religious elite. And they were able to increase their wealth through this incredible commercial exchange that that was connecting Mesopotamia with Anatolia, with Iran, with Syria, with the Levant. And those individuals were creating this chapel in a way similar to the family chapel in the cemetery that we have still today, I don't know, in Australia, but in Sicily, you have tons of these family chapels. They were built in 1800, and there's still this tradition with the last name outside. So the idea was to create a sense of belongingness to the family and pass the tradition of being a merchant, because we find together with the individuals, also like the whole set of weights with the names and tablets sometimes explaining what was the role of the merchants in the society. And we see an expansion, especially in some Mesopotamian cities, of this large house owned by the merchants. So it's kind of an element, the crypt, in the social transformation of the Mesopotamian societies at the beginning of the second millennium. It is also what is going to bring, at a certain point, the presence of a famous king, the King Amurabi, that belongs to this transformation in Mesopotamia with the arrival of a new ethnic identity, that is the Amorites of Semitic origin. So this sense of belongingness to the family is a very important thing. Yeah. Now, you understand why this started to happen. When did it stop and why did it stop? I mean, they don't do it now, do they? 
it's a complex thing because in certain society, it carry on. There are certain ethnographic example, for example, in Madagascar. In some contexts, it's still like an important element bearing there that we don't have this vision of the relationship between the community of the living and the dead. But in Madagascar, they've been keeping the remains of the dead ancestors inside the house, for example, like, you know, a year before they were removed to a different location. But regarding Mesopotamia, we still have traces of the burial of the queens, for example, in the Neo-Syrian palace of Nimrud, where in the first millennium B.C., And it's incredible the amount of jewelry that was found by the Iraqis in the 80s and the importance of the queens residing in the new palace, whereas the kings were buried in the old palace in Astro. So there was a a distinction, a gender differentiation between... Mm -hmm. And where were the jewels, with the kings or the queens? With the queens, that's (laughs) the thing. I mean, with the queens. And now they are kept in the bank of... Baghdad after, you know, 2003. I'm not sure so they're doing much good in the bank, and nobody's showing. They yes. need to be secure. I understand that. But these things are things exactly. that people need yeah. to see, you know, yeah. and, and get an understanding of what life was like. Nicola Laneri, yeah. thanks for joining us today and giving us some understanding to earlier forms of remembering the dead that go way beyond keeping their photo on the mantelpiece. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. That's the program for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoy interviewing people from all around the world with all these different viewpoints. What a threatening job, eh? Anyway, until next week, this is Amanda Vanstone saying, see you later. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.